Oh, good. It tells me. So we're rocking. All right. It has given me the advisement. So we'll just do an intro. What's up, guys? My name is Mateo. Welcome to the show. We have Alan, a good friend of mine, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about peak oil today, which is a subject he is very knowledgeable on and he's talked about with us for five years or more, right? I mean, how long have we been friends, Alan? Five, six years? Goodness, it's been a long time. 2015. Somewhere about there is when we first started coming into the same orbits. Right. Yes. Back in the good old Liberty days, back when I was still a libertarian. Now I'm a Christian theocrat and i just want uh the iron fist of god <laughs> to set things straight just just joking but uh Be very careful with what that is because god is not nearly as nice as modern man likes to think he is right i might have to work on my boat building skills but yes um it's it's good you have a lot of knowledge on a lot of things and so i'm happy to have you on the program and it's going to be a weekly thing we hope and it's going to be good conversation that a lot of people i think could learn a lot from so Good to have you on the program, Alan. Thank you for having me. <laughs> all I'll right. try to live up to all of that. I know, I know. And you're an award-winning scientist, Nobel Prize laureate, and everything like that. Now you're yeah. kind of insulting me. Did you just put <laughs> me on the same level of Obama? Yeah, yeah. Oh no, we would have. I have solved world. I have solved world war. Right. No, unfortunately, you first. have not killed anyone yet, Alan. You still got to work up to that glorious uh, mm-hmm. thing. I did resolve that argument at the Chick-fil-A the other day. I think I deserve a reward. (laughs) Does Chick-fil-A give reward points for killing people? I was thinking the Nobel Peace Prize would be adequate for that. Yeah. They just hand those things out now. Well, so Peak Oil, how did you get started with this, Alan? And where did you follow the breadcrumbs up to figuring out this was a significant issue? Well... Uh, long story short, I stumbled across the writings of John Michael Greer, and um, he's an interesting gentleman. He's about fit, somewhere in his 40s, 50s, and he's been writing for a long time. He is actually an archidruid of the 1700s re- religious revival sect from England variety, um, like the kind that the Wiccans like to pretend they are, like true old style Celtic. And um, he has written a lot on peak oil and other environmental issues that beset modern man. And he wrote a book called The Wealth of Nature, I believe, right? I think I read that book. He had an interesting theory on economics and how we could work with nature to have a sustainable economic system. It was kind of hippy-dippy. I like him, though. He's got a lot of good stuff. In him, I actually see an alternative intellectual view that we could have taken. Like, it's like you could see him, his views not only being mainstream, but like in today's jaded age, I can see how they would have been corrupted as well. So it's interesting seeing this person who it's like at one point in history, we had a path and his form of system thinking fell out of favor. And so we ended up what we have and some of the remnants. So it's interesting seeing that dichotomy, but he's a prolific writer, all sorts of fantasy, sci-fi. And he really likes to deal with the limitations of humans. Like he's really hard on that whole, you are a hairless ape. Don't get ahead of yourself. Like you need to reimagine the world in your proper place before any of this makes sense. And if you do that, you will probably be scared because it's actually very scary. You're very insignificant. That's very scary. (laughs) Nature does not care. Yes. Well, God cares. We like to to think God cares at least. (laughs) Right. But anyways beyond that so yeah i came across his writings um really when trying to pursue the other dissident reading um just trying to find other thought processes and ideas outside of the box and the idea of peak oil is pretty 
pretty simple in a nutshell. There's only so much oil on the planet. This is a geological process. Ergo, there has to be a hard cap, just like any game you're playing. And um, logically speaking, situations arise from this. And so the idea of peak oil is that we have already hit a point when new oil reserves being found are not compensating for the oil rates, you know, the rate of consumption by which oil continues to increase. In other words, short of finding a new mother load, some new great tech or someplace that oil has been hiding or a replacement to petroleum, um, we are going to see an eventual decrease in the amount of net energy, so to speak. And basically, as we saw with the industrialization, the rise of material wealth in the industrial world and factories and global, you'll see the same sort of general long-term reverse with the caveat that some of the technology and the knowledges will still carry over. So it's not going to be just like a straight back to the medieval age, but it's not going to be the glorious future with all of the tech and all of the awesome things everywhere that we'd imagine that we still tend to operate by. Yeah, and John Michael Greer, I think he talks about in his books um, maximizing the amount of work that we could do with manual technologies that we could use with our hands, with our feet, whatever. It's sort of like you know the hamster in the wheel type of thing where you're conducting electrics or electricity uh, and making mechanical uh, energy. Right? I'm trying to. I'm not okay. So basically, the idea is work being done with uh, physical labor or something like that. Right? Yeah. Think of it like a warehouse. You can have a forklift or you can have a team of guys doing it. When oil is cheap, energy is cheap, it makes sense to replace the people with machines. But in an economic and ecological efficiency standpoint, it's actually cheaper to use men because men don't need all of these vast factories to feed them that they can take like lettuce and beef, like all of this stuff that sustains a man and that a machine you have to build this extra infrastructure for, individuals already come equipped. Your muscles are already built in with a, me- a mechanic, so to speak. So and we already notion- convert solar energy into mechanical energy, just given our biological nature. Grass and cows. Farming techniques, grass cows, exactly. Like there's already sort of like an infrastructure in place for that. And so if we can learn to most efficiently and effectively use that infrastructure, instead of relying on this unsustainable energy resource, you know, we may have a chance. Yeah. For long-term well, big part of his writing is how much we don't want to accept that basically we have a culture that really assigns very, very, very low place to physical labor and not just low status. You're talking, we kind of assign it a place of pain. Like in our moral hierarchy, it is associated with violence to some extent. And this is part of the problem with imagining a future where we can actually use what we have and be happy. Like under our current system, you can't have most of the population just be day laborers, even if they could live nearly as comfortably as they do now, because we've trained ourselves to feel that that is a pain inflicted upon us. So part of coming to terms and adapting to the, 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 the limitations of Earth's resources is going to be a, re, you know, a reimagining of, okay, what do we value? What is hard? What is easy? What do we tell ourselves? You can cry over this, but you're a wuss if you cry over this. Like, and those are important aspects to adapting to the future. So how much oil do you think we have left as far as years? And one of the interesting things just to sort of tie into that question is a lot of people are like, well, if we can use oil more efficiently, well, then that means that maybe we could stretch out our timeline for a little bit longer. 
Uh, Let me ask you in using oil. But hold on. There's something oh, okay. called uh, Javon's paradox, which I think you've heard of, right? Where even if we use a resource more efficiently, that actually doesn't mean we're going to use it less and have it for a longer period of time. In fact, quite the opposite, because if we can use it more efficiently, that just means we'll use more of it because we can get more things done using less. And so we're going to build up an infrastructure to accommodate for that extra increase in work. And so mm-hmm. that means in, in the end, we're going to do more actually. And yeah. so given that, it's sort of a nonlinear question, but by your estimation, based on your research, how much time do you think we have left? Well, let me answer your question with a question. How much toothpaste do you have in the tooth in, 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 in the tube when you're squeezing at the last bit? There's more in there, and if you squeeze really hard, you can get more in. So how much toothpaste do you have left? So that's it's, sort of the question with oil. Right. Like, it's sort of a matter of how much we're willing to work to get the extra drops out of the ground. Yeah, and we the know there's more to be right? squeezed out, but at some point you have, you know, the, the real question is, is when is our desire to bleed this stone going to give in? Yes. Okay. Right. Now that said, now that said, to answer the spirit, I think more the spirit of your question, how long do we have at the current rate? Um, that's obviously going to depend. By all accounts, we've already reached the point when we are no longer finding more possible oil reserves to compensate for what we are currently burning through. So basically, we're already at that point when the cushion is now being we're, we're eating into the, the cushion stock, the capital stock of oil supplies until eventually you actually have to start cutting consumption and demand. So like right now, we don't yet have to cut demand. But probably within our generation or two, and a generation being 20, 20 years, so about 20 to 40 years, if we don't find some new major reserves, you'll probably start seeing hard decisions being made on the margins about, well, what are we going to give up? What's, what's, what's no longer economical given that, you know, investors know they're, 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 they're looking at these numbers and they don't matter now. An investor only lives like what? He's only investing 40 years. But once these problems come within that 40-year span, really, you know, 40, 60 years within your living lifetime, that's when we, we, we begin to take notice. So probably, barring any major thing, I'd say within 40, 60 years um, before it becomes a conversation that the common man is having. It's not just a sort of a dorkish conversation or a liberty conversation. Or not a, it'll, it'll be one of like pragmatic this guy says he'll do it when he's president. This guy says he'll do this. Well, um, you know, what's interesting is that um, this sort of plays into that. I read an article today, and I've been hearing a lot of this on sort of the conspiratorial side of the Internet. Uh, but there's an idea where we're going to have carbon credits that are delegated and issued to people, and they can only use so much carbon per year. Now, whether you're concerned about carbon, whether you're concerned about whatever, that is a way that people are, I guess, going to lessen the amount of resources that they're going to be using. And maybe they see a resource issue with oil. Maybe they see a resource issue otherwise, or maybe they're just trying to go for a total global population control. But that is something that they're working on. And a lot of this stuff is coming out of the current COVID situation where they're saying that, oh, because this works so well, these lockdown measures and you know our tracing apps and everything like that, maybe this could help us fight climate change. Maybe this could help us uh, save the planet. You know, call Captain Planet, and he's going to get his <laughs> friends to track you into the grave, right? And so 
that could be what is coming. Uh, so what do you think about that? What do you think about carbon credits? What do you think about, you know, them saying it's very ominous eat so much food of a certain type, you know, maybe meat uh, costs you more carbon credits than eating bugs. Like who knows where this goes, but Look, they can't even keep Biden's son from doing crack with whores on camera. And you think they're going to attract individual, like 350 million to 200. What's our population? Now? They're going to attract people on individual credits. It's like, come on, you tried this. It was called school truancy officers and everyone ignored them at the time, unless it was convenient. It's just going to be one more thing you're supposed to do, but yeah, come on. But they may integrate this with artificial intelligence, with the blockchain, with a lot of new technologies which are coming out. And we've seen with the Internet of Things, we've talked about this a lot on the channel, where they're going to put a chip in just about everything. They're doing it with gold and silver. They're doing it with a lot of things. And they're going to be able to track its location. They're going to be able to see how far it goes from whatever source and measure perhaps the carbon output as a result of that movement. And so – Maybe there are algorithms which are set up. Maybe there's an artificial intelligence infrastructure which is set up to enforce this kind of stuff. Who knows? Doesn't that sound ridiculously expensive? That sounds, sounds totally like ridiculous. That it's like, <laughs> ridiculous. We will solve 100%. this problem by dumping more of the problem on the problem. Because all of these – the computers especially are massive energy hogs. The, 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 the rare minerals and metals that go into making the microchips to feed into everything from the camera to the TV to the electrical – all of that shit – some of this stuff is already in rare supply, right? You want to amp that up with little GPS trackers injected directly into the baby's skull at birth. And it's like, buddy, like, okay, 10 <laughs> to 20 years and we're out because you have just decided to lose your mind. Like mom's spending all of her money on dresses at this point. We have 5,000 dresses in the basement. <laughs> she just won't wash any. She goes to Kohl's and buys some new ones. That's the level of proliferation, you know. So I think that's ominous, but barring a nuclear energy breakthrough, something that makes all of my shit sound like nuttiness. Like, oh, that was uh, you know, one of those old records. A Luddite, right? Barring something like that, like, I mean, you're welcome to try. You'll just make yourself look stupider quicker, and eventually we will get rid of you because some other guy will be like, hey, I'll be slightly less horrible to you and I'll kill them. And we'll be like, sign me up. <laughs> that's what that. a lot of the population is doing. It's like, yeah, these guys are bad. We want them on our team. And it's just like, no, that's not the right idea. That's not the right idea at all. But my question, as what you just <laughs> said, you talked about a nuclear breakthrough. What do you think about uranium? What do you think about uh, nuclear power? And I know we're They've not been saying it since yet, the 60s. but Where nuclear is it? fission could help. It's since the 60s. Since the 60s, we were swore, they, like this was mainstream scientists from the heart of the, like, the Cold War scientific industrial complex. The men who took us to the moon, they were talking about few, like breeder fusion reactors back in the fucking 60s. It was theoretically around in the 50s. It's been 60 years. But don't you think maybe they halted the advancement of that in order to in benefit big oil, years, in order to benefit to, the I big mean, industrialists? Think of the 1800s. In 60 years, you went from, hey, we have just developed trains to automobiles to we are now flying. In 60 years, you went from trains to you're on the moon. And in 60 years since then, nothing. Well, bro, I've been listening to Joe Rogan. I'm not sure about that whole moon thing. So <laughs> I'm messing. But um, I hope so. That I think the adoption of nuclear power was to some degree stifled by a couple of different variables. Number one, you had big oil uh, who wanted to keep things pumping, right? And we had relationships in the Middle East and uh, perhaps those networks and the petrodollar uh, was based on the back of the success of oil being the main uh, source of energy in the world. And so maybe there was a financial incentive 
and then maybe uh, given Fukushima, which happened in 2011, which I think shut down a lot of nuclear re- reactors across the world and really stifled uh, the adoption of it from there because a lot of people got scared. There was negative press about it everywhere. And so what do you think about different variables which may have had a play in preventing its adoption? I mean, is the question whether we're going to be able to sustainably do what we do with nuclear power? Or is it about the theoretical adoption of nuclear power? Because strictly speaking, those are two separate things. Well, I mean, we need the adoption in order to start chronologically for energy uh, in order to. Uh, accommodate some of our energy needs, right? Uh, but as nuclear far as energy is really us, only affordable in a world with lots of petroleum sloshing around, right? The refinement and manufacturing process of nuclear energy itself requires a ex- significant amount of chemistry and high-level physics and energy. Um, and as always, at the base of these material pyramids of resources needed to get your factory up and running, you find Petroleum and petroleum-related products play such a critical role in making the operations affordable. So the really gross fact of the matter is, is nuclear energy can't really sustain nuclear energy on its own productive value. Like nuclear energy alone, barring, again, a major breakthrough in a fit, like something truly mind-blowingly staggering, which is nowhere on the horizon, um, it just can't sustain itself if you take away oil. Because like you need oil in order to make oil. plastics and everything else, right? Yeah, there's so like much the, in the manufacturing and maintenance of nuclear energy. Uh, that process itself is basically subsidized by how easy oil is. Easy oil is like noob mode. It is like, let's just give them all the epic tier items to start with. <laughs> with oil, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can turn the damn shit into food if you want. It's amazing. It's like ama- it's a wonder chemistry, right? You just can't replace its versatility. It can be aspirin. It can be steel. It can be plastics. It can be energy. It can be drugs. It can be, I mean, just set your mind to it and we can do something with it. When you physically lose that chemical, it doesn't matter if you have a replacement from a theoretical how much energy can you extract. Like the ease of that chemical itself is a massive advantage, right? It is the tool itself that brings massive productivity. And it's one of the few tools capitalism really can't replace. Nuclear energy doesn't have the returns. There's nothing that looks like it does. And the main culprit, it's not oil and it's not a lack of understanding, it's physics, right? Like as energy sources get more complicated, you need more and more extreme forces and whatnot to access it and lock it. This is just basic entropy, right? This is why we talk about the heat death at the end of the universe. It all trickles out. So like uranium like, is a very, very dense material. It has a lot of energy trapped into it, uh, but it's extremely difficult to access, whereas something like oil is very cheap, right? But it's, so, it's difficult to access initially, right? I mean, there's a lot of startup cost to getting the power out of uranium, but once you start the operations, uh, the return... Uh, is rather more profitable over time, assuming that the uh, nuclear reactor is up and running for quite a long time, right? I mean, I'm just speaking off the cuff. I mean, I'm not a nuclear physicist or anything like that. No. But, uh, so Uranium what- sources are not very plentiful. Like they're, they're plentiful, but they're not pl- – like most of them are plentiful in the sense that if you could dig to the, the center of the well, earth – Well, they're, they're, all they're not plentiful at these prices. They're not plentiful at you know, $30. Wait, wait, wait. wait. No, the price does not create the material. Mm-hmm. Human value creates the price. 
That's why yeah, yeah. religious so, iconography can be more valuable than any material good, right? Uh, here, whereas here's my thing: if energy becomes a, a luxury and people are willing to pay a lot for it in the future, then those people are probably going to be able to outbid other people for the use of oil in order to make these nuclear reactors, right? In order to make it so that you know they could have access to, I guess, cheaper energy than oil. Sure, but what would you have to give up? Maybe a computer in every home and in every pocket. Like, what's the trade-off? It's when you start thinking in terms of trade-offs that you begin to realize, oh, we are on a slippery slope down and there's no real off unless we choose to arrange our values so that this isn't a net loss proposition. Like, if we think, hey, we're going to lose a lot of our convenience and luxuries, but we can keep a lot of the most powerful luxuries and conveniences of the modern era, like the telegraph. Like 3,000 years from now, a telegraph system, if I had limited energy, because I could only have renewables and hydroelectric, like the telegraph system or that I'd keep, like that would be a government thing. Like, yeah, we're going to make sure that's available. That's like half of the modern world. Technology from the 1800s is really half of our social makeup now. Like the, your, 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 this is just like really a, the last 200 years condensed into the most easy and awesome convenient format. You can live a modern lifestyle without it. You can 100%. be informed in a modern sense without this. So, you know, when you start looking at it in terms like that, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too, but you're just not going to get every cake you've ever wanted. It doesn't also mean we're going to be impoverished overnight. But as for, you know, if people want to buy it, they could control the resource. They just build reactors. Yeah, but yeah, then you don't have your own cars. You don't have your own TVs in every house. You know, maybe high energy consumption like the radio. Radio is kind of cool until you realize, hey, most of these things we're beaming around are going to no one in particular. There's efficiencies issues right now that doesn't make any sense because, you know, energy is still plentiful. Um, So, you know, I actually think there's a lot of hope with how people will react, especially, you know, our elites don't actually want to hate us. They are us. If they hate us, it's because we hate ourselves right now, right? Well, you can imagine in 100 years, we'll probably be over all of this cultural decadence crap for one reason or the other. Our great-great-grandkildens won't have that baggage. So they'll have a lot of more cultural capital to work, work around these problems without freaking the hell out, right? But imagining energy in, uh, like is purely in terms of investment. That's the fundamental mistake. You can treat it like an investment now because it really is that plentiful. When it stops being that plentiful, it's going to go back to being a state issue, you know. Yeah. So, what about uh, synthetic oil? We've heard a little bit about synthetic oil. Uh, is that just hopium? Is that just people who are just what you mean by it. if you're talking like the care? If you're talking like um, ethanol, the ethanol workaround that really does exist. You can make ethanol out of corn, and you can use ethanol to burn things. So, like. Um, in that sense, there is synthetic oil. The technology is going, not going anywhere, but that's more of like a marginal productive value on top of the base good oil. You have oil, but I have some specific needs. Synthetically creating oils for those needs is better than using the raw stuff for one reason or another, whether it be scales of economies or chemical precision and efficiency, or just because, hey, you're North Korea and you're blockaded by three-fourths the planet. Make do with what you got. Um, you know. But as for a replacement, nah. Like we tried that with the ethanol. I mean, we're America. We we have the best agriculture in the world, and you can all suck it once we have no more oil. We'll still be richer than you, um, yeah. right? Well, um, hopefully, hopefully, and that's I a mean, losing proposition. Even trying to use corn to fuel it um, as a widespread consumption now, in terms of like local specific issues, 
you can see these things all remaining on the table. Like even ethanol, corn ethanol, it has its place in a more balanced system. And Michael Greer, John Michael Greer, he talks about this and how we try and tend to imagine in the industrial world, everything in massive scales of economy, everything's got to be big. It eventually, theoretically, it's, it's not, it's not appealing to us unless we can really scale it up to the size of the Death Star, so to speak. If you, if you can't imagine Absolutely. scaling it to the size of the Death Star, uh, it's probably not that important. It, has, it doesn't have a future. Yeah. But flip that around and you imagine going local, decentralized, you know, economies of, you know, qualitative performance and individual. And you realize a lot of these things have a variety of use, like growing a little bit of corn in your house so that you have a little bit of like lighting oil over winter. Like that, if people, a few people did that, that could dramatically decrease costs for electricity in certain types. So, you know, there's all these weird issues to sort of balance out. Sure, sure. And given what you just said with ethanol and corn and everything like that, what are your thoughts on peak topsoil? Is that something you've looked into? I know that some people are talking about that. Uh, and there's only so many nutrients that are now in the ground. Things are becoming rather thinned out because of mass productive you know, farming and you're a big fan of, uh, what's, what's the term, uh, horticulture of, uh, shoot, what's it called? Herbal, uh, farming. What is it, right? I had a word. You, got, you have the word. You have the word. Come on. Uh, the word. Uh, organic farming. Okay. Organic farming, organic uh, something. We'll yeah. call it organic farming, even though it sounds incredibly hippie-ish <laughs> and it's probably going to give people the wrong idea. And this yeah. is organic farming is it's not farming. You can easily do with a machine. Like right now you have these, like you have vast fields of one crop because then you have one dude build one machine that can do all of that at once hyper efficient. The problem is, is that means you have a lopsided field because, you know, if you look at a jungle or your forest behind your house, it's like, hey, there's all sorts of shit living in the same three feet. It's not all one thing because those one things, they, they eat different things and put shit out different other things that other things use. But when you all grow one crop or just two crops, it's like, okay, there's none of that. We have to artificially add in the nutrients, like throwing in vitamin pills. Whereas mixing it up so that some of the things you're growing are actually providing the fertilizer to some of the other things you're growing, you you can cut out half the fertilizing. And crop cycles and everything like that, where you plant some crops. The problem is, is under the industrial system, you can't really scale that. It's too complex to legibly scale in any way that you can imagine a Rockefeller coming around and making do with it, right? Like, it's just insanely complex. It'll probably take a couple hundred years of trying to imagine industrial farming and that sort of organic farming before you can create a sociocultural economic system that can really build, you know, super complex societies where 90% of us are out in a garden every day and life is glorious because we've recreated utopia. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think communal farming and gardening is going to be really key going into the future. I think it's really going to become quite normal um, because I think we're going into a period of of decentralization because a lot of this usage of oil, like you talk about, well, if we run into energy issues, What's probably one of the first things that's going to happen? Well, decentralization, buying stuff locally, not having to have to ship it, ship things in from like a thousand miles away from China somewhere. You know, COVID uh, taught us that one thing breaks in a central system, and now we're all vulnerable. Even if you looked after your own eggs, whereas a decentralized system is sort of like, yeah, if Bob gets kneecapped, it doesn't take out the whole village. Right, and so medieval villages, they'd own little strips of farmland. Everybody owned a little strip of farmland, and every man, like major ecology near the village. That way, if any one place failed, the whole village took the hit. No one person suffered. But conversely, for the whole village to fail, 
the whole village area had to fail. It was a very robust decentralized system. But that does take a little bit of top-down organization for that to occur, right? Because, you know, we have a global free market right now uh, for the most part. But in order to think ahead and say, hey, if we have this and we just offshore all of our jobs and our corporations to the lowest common denominator of people who will work for the lowest amount, which is probably China, Asian countries, Africa, well, that leaves us very exposed in the future to you know, potential hiccups if they have problems politically, uh, chemically, or biologically, or whatever, as we saw in 2020. And that could leave us very much exposed. So we could have short-term uh, gains from you know, macro efficiencies. But then again, should we trade some of those short-term gains and comforts for long-term sustainability by imposing some rules and imposing some um, you know, standards like tariffs or just making it so that we buy American, make, maybe subsidize it somehow? Like, What are your thoughts on that? I'm definitely no longer in the libertarian vein of thought anymore. I see them as reactionaries, hopeless, hopeless reactionaries. Um, You know, so I would say like basically all that, the protectionist thoughts, they're the band, they're the the bandit in the box that we still have the most knowledge about. If we had to turn to something, we should turn to it. It won't really solve the problem because we know enough about it to know that we're really only screwing with the system to try and get behavior in one area. This isn't going to fix it. The best we could do is sort of, distort the flow so that maybe it flows in the direction we want and creates new long-term patterns that will be self-sustaining. And I think that's really our goal. Like for the last 40, 50 years, we've been obsessed with driving down the cost of luxury prices at the expense of your mundane everyday prices and jobs. This is the, the plight of the worker, right? What happened to all the steel mills? Well, we offshored them and when a lot, basically the bottom half lost out, but in, in return, the middle and the upper half have gained a vast increase in their relative buying power for the luxuries, right? So trying to reverse that trend. So, you know, it's like more of society is sharing the burden, so to speak, and it's more sustainable for your local workers because, you know, you're a, poor, a majority of your population. I think that's the first big step. The really long-term goal, though, is to... Um, create a new value system that doesn't place material growth and material status competition as the primary mechanism by which we sexually and uh, self-select and politically select as well. Like right now, which is the libertarian our, issue, which is we're going to value. That's essentially why the libertarians are the more than everything. Yeah. The libertarians will basically say it's all materialism. It's all economics. Just let the free market decide. And it's like, well, buddy, the problem with that is, is that's a materialistic viewpoint. And we're running out of nickel, like when we're running out of all of these fancy shit. And it's like, we can't sustain it. We need another way. Now, I'm not saying we go back to the medieval notion of honor and kingship and all that crap, but we're going to need some abstract spiritual good as a way of self-selecting amongst ourselves. Because if we keep piling it into the whole, who has the bigger monstrosity of a house, we're going to run into problems one day. We're already like we already have trouble like replacing the like we no longer use big trees. We use stick framing now because we've gotten rid of all the 30, 40 foot trees that used to be all around America. You only have smaller trees to build with now. Mm. That was a hundred years ago. Where are we gonna be in a hundred years from now? So yeah. Um we need culture back. We need to some degree tribalism back, which people don't like to hear, but it's true. We have that. Like we need in group preference. At least for none of that ever went away. Populations, right? 
Well, now it's coming back. And a lot, a lot of that is because there's a lot of toxicity being injected into the population. People are doing that out of fear. But really, we should just self-select based on values that we agree with. Um, you know, Christians should come together and, you know, Muslims are already very much together. Uh, not all Muslims, <laughs> mind you, they uh, have problems with themselves. They only seem but... that way because we are so hopelessly fractured. But th- those those guys, yes, yes. I'm convinced Islam is in for a catastrophic decline within the next 20 to 30 years. They're already being gradually overtaken well, in most Africa. Luckily, the Taliban uh, is putting some stop to that. No, no, no. The Taliban probably. are not Muslims first. They are Pashtunis, who are the traditional imperial tribe of that region. Like what Afghanistan has been. Remember, Afghanistan fended off a united Afghanistan, fended off the British Empire in the, at its height. In the 1800s, that gate grade between the, the Afghanistan is not some tribal backwater. We think that now because we're Americans and we're really above and ahead of all the rest of you losers. But, uh, you know, no, they, they have a big history and they're not as unified as we have been lately. But like, yeah. So the Taliban taking over all of our agi-propaganda against them aside, it's like, these are the New Englanders of Afghanistan. They have every claim to be running Afghanistan. And you will note most Afghanis are perfectly fine to do business with them, even when they don't like them. Just like most Republicans and Democrats will put up with the others in office, a Southerner from the Midwest like me, or the like, I'll put up with the New Englanders and the Californians. I think you fuckers are crazy. You're going to set yourselves on fire. <laughs> Plot me down in the middle of the world, like with a random selection. I know who I'm still going to be bunking with at night. Yeah, yeah. The same for the Afghanistan. The, the Taliban are from the Pashtun region. That's the tribal region that has been the heartland. They've always favored Persia. They've always been anti-India because throughout most of Afghanistan history, it's been India invading them. So they do not like India. Even yeah. now, they're already starting the spitting match with India again. It's almost yeah. like we were a nothing, a blip, an interruption. Well, the Taliban is very much backed by Pakistan, and Pakistan has always had a problem with India. So, yeah, we could definitely see Pakistan that. Pakistan didn't even fucking exist until the British were like, oh, I'm sorry, excuse my language, but like until the British were like, let's separate these people up by, 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 by race and religion. Nothing will go wrong with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think, though, about the Taliban coming in and basically getting rid of all these Western, you know, gender study schools and, uh, you know, coming back into imposed religious law, uh, banning the the cropping of opium and a lot of they things like kind of based, uh, you know, relative to Islamic culture and you know, society, right? Okay, they sound like pretty basic progressives of a non-Western sort, but like they're they're Puritans of sorts. They're like the Puritans of the Islamic world of sorts. Sort of. I mean, sort of to some extent. They do but... a lot of bad things. Let me just say that they do a lot of bad things. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I mean, we're the know, bomb. we brought bomb television weddings. and we brought internet to uh, Afghanistan, and you know that's not. We overlooked their tribal leaders raping little boys because it was conveniently like convenient for us. So like um... that's another key thing. Yes, and I tried to talk about that in some of our other videos. By the way, this is not going on YouTube. <laughs> we can like we're gonna take put. This you're not you're not ready for that level of a uh, dissident. <laughs> well no we'll get banned <laughs> there's no doubt about it but um the yeah. algorithm has detected a problem <laughs> yes immediately uh you are here by term it's not food. personal literally an algorithm has banned you like no but you're person- right you're right the afghan forces were uh you know pretty much allowed and in some cases enticed by the u.s regime there by u.s troops to 
rape little boys. And sometimes this was happening on military bases, which is crazy. And the Taliban did not like this. And a lot of the population didn't like this either, which is why a lot of them were, you know, pretty uh, okay with the Taliban taking over. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's pretty bad. That was all going back to the eighties, the eighties, the, you know, you have these old warlords fighting off the, the Mujahideen fighting off the Soviet Union. The Soviets finally pull out. Afghanistan has a weak central government. So you have a bunch of strongmen running the country, local strongmen, highly decentralized. Now these guys start getting older. They're pretty decadent. And it's like one of the ways they can get overcome tribal loyalties is through sex scandal. So basically you join into this environment where it is encouraged for you to participate in this. It's like a frat that's encouraging you. But the main point is to make you complicit because once right. you do that, you have this internal moral barrier. You can no longer really see yourself going back to the normal side. You're too ashamed or maybe you got off on it or whatever, but either way you've permanent, it's like marking yourself in a permanent well, way. It's like joining the bloods or the crypts. Like you got to kill somebody or do some terrible thing. If you want to join the gang, uh, because then if you're well, out of the yeah. gang, who else is going to trust you to be part of their gang or who else is going to trust you to be part of their system or organization when you're so down and dirty with those kinds of sins. Right. Yeah. You know, so that that was sort of some of the stuff going on there. But, uh, yeah, I, got, I mean, I got no problem with the Afghanis taking it back. Like, I'm just a terrible disaster as it played out. But that is really all on us. Like, Trump had made a deal with them that we would be out before the fighting season began this year, which meant we would be out by spring so that they would have the whole year to consolidate a rational political environment. Because over there, you fight during the spring, summer, a bit of fall. But, like, winter, you go back home because it's not a nice place to be during winter. Like you, you saw, we saw this every year since we've been there. So we basically, yeah, we just basically said, ah, fuck that deal. Screw that deal. We're not doing that. And um, they were not happy with being screwed, which is one of the reasons they're not playing ball around the whole airport and shit. Cause like, yeah, you guys broke your deal. We're no yeah. one trusts you. <laughs> yeah. They're just about tired of us and wants to leave. Just about the whole, well, here's the thing. All the world does. Like we seem to be yeah. the only people who regularly do not see us breaking our words. We haven't won a single war since World War II. We still think, even libertarians think we are the massive, ever-expanding empire. It's like, what sort of clown world common is that? We've been in decline since World War II. Yeah, and people are rushing to get out of the dollar. We've, we've done this in different videos where we've shown that the dollar reserves in all of these countries is precipitously declining, and it's declined over the last 25 years. And it's at a 25-year low. People are picking up different currencies like the Chinese yuan, uh, the euro, gold even. And so, yeah, the U.S. hegemony is definitely not in a good uh, place right now. The petrodollar looks like it's in trouble. The Saudis are now making deals with the Russians for military arms, which was something that was unheard of years ago because Saudi Arabia bought all their arms. There's a political realignment going on right now, that's for sure. As a major yeah. political rely. Honestly, I think a lot of it we could take advantage of if we could get over our pride. Like this idea is like people get worked up over declining in the reserve value of the dollar. It's like, well, okay, as long as it's still the reserve currency, we get our nice perk of taxing the world indirectly. So don't don't scream about that. And if we would accept that loss and decentralize and like actively promote, yeah, China, why don't you be regional hegemon over there? Like we will let you deal with all of this crap. We don't know the Vietnamese. We don't know like they could, they could you know let you handle that. Well, them. Um, I think we could gain a lot for that. Yeah, I think now, that said, Saudi isolated. Arabia, I would like to see fall apart. I do not like the Sauds. I think they're a force of evil in the world. I think they're a force of evil 100%. for Islam. Like, And I don't mean like, I think in the same way I would call some versions of Christianity bad for Christianity, Saudi Arabia is bad for Islam. 
Well, you know, it's amazing because well, they're part of the Wahhabist culture, which is like the most extreme part of Islam. And people forget like there's Sufi Islam. There are different Islamic traditions, which are, you know, kind of more hippie. Some of the same traditions. You no, know, not as crazy like, and uh, violent. They're like um, a lot of modern Christian sects, completely f- creations of the early modern period. These do not have any historical history. Yeah. Like a lot of, uh, like a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians. Uh, that take the scripture word for word, that is not Orthodox Christianity. People think that's Orthodox because they're taking it like by the word of the Bible. But uh, in Orthodox Christianity, we go by the interpretations of the church fathers. There's a lot of mysticism actually in Orthodox Christianity. And a lot of that is lost in modern Christian uh, traditions. Basically, we have 2000 years of Christian history. Why do people think traditional is anything like from the 1800s? It's like, well, you would think traditional would be anything from like maybe the first five to 700 years. Everything yeah. after that's kind of like the new hippie on the block version of it. Yeah. So um, as for Saudi Arabia, I want to point this out. Their period of social unity is over. Like they kind of parallel well, America. Going back to peak oil. If we hit peak oil, they're in a lot of trouble. They're in a lot, a lot of trouble because their entire yeah. country is basically a giant social welfare state that's run on the back of oil profits. And if that goes away, yeah. Yeah, and they may have access to it, but they're a desert nation. It's not like they can build their own firearms to defend their oil fields. Um, So, you know, it's like when oil is your only resource, you actually have a big problem. It's like gold being your only resource. Yeah, you can't really fend off invaders with just gold or oil. Like, nothing else. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, um, uh, Arabic had this term like asabiya. It basically is the public unity. And the theory of civilizations is that uh, by being occupied or at the meta, the meta frontier of ethics between competing powers, a people will gradually develop a sense of oneness, uh, a sense of cooperation that will go on. And if it's under enough pressure, it will eventually because it become its own imperial culture. And so it will seek to unite the people under it and then spread out. You sort of see this. You see the rise of empires. They start off as a small tribe, which gains the allegiance of a lot of tribes. Because even if you dominate everyone, after you beat them, you have to bring them into your coalition, right? And so it is that unity spirit that lets them dominate and bring new people in. But eventually the empire reaches a point when they can't bring new people in, either because the cultures are too radically different or because they've reached their complexity level. And then the empire starts eating itself. It starts eating its own cooperation to keep cooperative spirits, so to speak, a sort of self-cannibalizing to maintain it as the elites don't want to change eventually that public spirit of unity goes away. And whereas once people could genuinely agree on certain basic tenets, they no longer agree and you have a fragmentation. So Saudi Arabia, just like America is sort of through this phase where it's like, yeah, for the last 150 years, y'all have been increasingly unified as a people, as a nation. And now just like us, you're reaching the point when that unity period is coming to an end. Well, they just made an alliance with Israel over the last five years, which was not at all where they were 40, 50 years ago. You can guess at the average Saudi Arabian. That does not sit well with. Not at all. They're still like, you know, okay, Israel's a fact of life now, but like, do we have to still like them? And be allied with them to attack Bashar al-Assad. Allied with them is a problem. Like a peace treaty is one thing, but like an alliance is... Like you're saying that our interests as Muslims of the desert is similar to their interests as Jews of the coast. 
Okay, yeah. who are you loyal to again? And that's the loyalty that's crashing. So what you see in Saudi Arabia is their elite little stripes at the top. And the, the, the extended royal family of several hundred thousand people at this point, apparently. But um, for the rest of them, I'm sure it's more than that. Tribal dwellers. So, yeah. you know, this is going to, you know, whether it backfires in, in 10 years or 30 years, you know, you and I, if we live a long, healthy life, we will be there when the Soviets or when the Saudis seem strong and we will be there when their name is removed from the map forever. Possibly. You know, there will be something Zara Nicholas there, 2 comes to mind in the Romanovs. Yeah, that, that all comes to mind. Exactly. And something like that is going to happen. But going back to big oil, because um, I, I want to keep focus on that. I'm the interviewer. I got to keep us in check. This is a great conversation. It's very interesting. Uh, we could get into all that with future conversations. Very key. But um, w- one last uh, question that I have about you still there or are you frozen? Oh, no, I'm go. not frozen. I'm listening. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, so borehole. You had mentioned the borehole, uh, and this is some kind of novelty which happened, I believe, in Russia, where they okay, went the like Kola, the Kola, It's the, the Kola super deep borehole. Okay. It was an experiment by the Soviets to basically dig a, dig a super deep borehole, and a borehole is just a hole that you bore up. You bring up the materials, you know. Um, to see what's there. And it's a way of both like digging wells, but also like science. Like you want to know how they know temperatures and what's been in the air. They dig these ice bores out and they examine the chemical compositions. So um, it was back in about the seventies, the, the Soviets just start digging really deep. They just basically, it was part of that whole, let's, you know, America, we're, we're better than you. We're going to dig, dig the best science, scientific borehole. We'll just learn all the best stuff. You can't do it. Har, har, har. Yeah. And they get down a huge distance. Um, you know, like what, uh, 40,000 feet. So like four or five mile borehole, just like ridiculous. Um, and they took several years. They just kept, kept at it. Right. Um, but it bubbled when it got that deep, it was releasing gas and methane. Like something was bubbling, right? Like some sort of just like a natural gas deposit. And that's remarkable because like, you know, we talk about oil reserves and most of our mindset is within the first mile of, well, where you stand, like a mile down, a mile up. That's the world that exists everywhere. Right. Yeah. But, you know, when you dig down far enough, when you start getting to that mantle crust period, like transitionary zone where the solidity of rock starts becoming a little questionable. Right. It still looks like rock, but now it's like moving differently. Well, by physics, there's a potential there for a non-life related hydrocarbons to be formed because the intensity of the heat and the chemistry of that area can create oils from other, like, you know, it's constituent components. You don't need the life component bringing, soaking up the carbon, then dying in huge quantities and then being put under pressure. There's a theoretical area where, Hey, by just natural physics, we may have massive sources of naturally produced hydro, like geo geographic produced or what is it? geologically produced hydrocarbons, right? It's not something that's gotten any attention. We know more about the contours and the mountains of Mars than we do about most of the ocean floor, let alone several miles under the Earth's crust. So for all the problems we have, like with peak oil and resource issues, and we're not going to the stars, the truth is, is we also may still not even have begun to tap into a significant chunk of the Earth's like base resources because our imagination has been stuck on what we can scrape off the surface. I'm not saying that like there's this way around peak oil down there. I'm saying that 
it strikes me as crazy. We talk about colonizing Mars or the moon when it's like this energy situation needs to be resolved. And like, we have these vast reserves on earth that we don't know if there's there. We know by physics, Hey, could be there. We could have some estimates place it like to 10,000 to a hundred, like 10,000 percent more than all the oil that we've ever discovered so far could just be locked down at the earth at, at that mantle. We don't oh my know. goodness. So let me put it this way. Instead of funding NASA, why aren't we funding its Earth study equivalent? Okay, we don't want to go to the moon. I want to go to the center of the Earth, find what's down there and bring it up here. Good it point. seems easier than trying to go across the stars. There's more. Well, and the reward is much more local, right? I mean, there are and you don't have to deal with radiation, there. too, because that's a bitch. <laughs> yes, the Van Allen radiation. We don't need that. That's what they call it, right? The Van Allen radiation? The Van Allen radiation belt. That's just part of it. Though. That's the part that... that, that yeah, Joe that Rogan was telling us. me about that, too. Huh? <laughs> Joe Rogan is telling me about that too as to why we need to go here. Yeah. But, so, uh, you know, we have all of these ways to the future that we haven't even begun to imagine. A lot of our both utopianism and apocalypticism just completely ignores the reality of the options that standing on our, that standing or sitting beneath our feet today. Right. And part of solving the problem isn't just like accepting that there is a problem, it's accepting that you need new ideas. Like you need to completely break out of that bubble. But here's um, the thing that I'm thinking about. OPEC, which is an oil cartel comprised of oil producing nations, they like to control the price of oil. Sure. And if you open up this wellspring, you know, you have this genie come out of the bottle where now you've opened up uh, an, a wormhole basically to what seems like an infinite amount of oil. And I'm not saying that to get around people or anything like that. We've bought another century. Yes. Well, who knows? Another century. That's great. Right. But like, right? yeah, it is. Yeah. Give but a chance for science to stumble across something great. If they open that up, they can't, I don't think control how much oil is coming out of there um, oh, sure. because it's there and they can't make excuses of, Oh, well we have to go out and explore more. Oh, we I have mean, to do figure you remember out the Hanseatic league of Germany, the Antiatic what? The Hanseatic League. No. No, of course you don't. That's what's going to happen to OPEC. <laughs> yeah. The Hanseatic League used to be the most powerful trade company. Uh, it was almost state-like back in the 12 and 1300s. It had holdings going across from what we might consider St. Petersburg all the way down to Iberia. It was one of the most powerful commercial businesses. It could rival some of the princedoms and kingdoms of the time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, by the 1500s, it was... Old folk don't care. You're you're outdated. What you did, other people found a way around. But they never really lost what they did best. So that's the thing. It's like even if you hold a monopoly, it doesn't mean the world's not going to change around you. Like, oh, you want to be the only guy hoarding pennies? Yeah, whatever. Here's an award, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. I mean, I think those basically they're going to try and stop it. It's in their interest. I don't begrudge them. They can't really stop us from digging big holes out in Minnesota. So. They can't. I just won't. I don't think about OPEC. Why should I? They can't stop us from digging a 40,000 foot hole to the center of the earth. Yeah, they can't do that. Minnesota, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Bomb the hole? No, no, no. Yes. We bomb <laughs> yes, They bomb will us. bomb the hole. Absolutely. They will Gaddafi that hole with the bayonet. You <laughs> <laughs> just see them hurling themselves at boreholes and blowing themselves up. Oh, <laughs> guys, chill. It's Bore not going to work. Scuba diving. Scuba diving right, to the center of the earth. We build it with concrete. That, that won't work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but at least there's a chance. At least maybe we could figure out there's some oil there. And who knows? Maybe that starts a revolution. It's just like you guys are preventing us from having this energy. Now, 
I've read a lot of conspiracy theories about this. What do you think of zero point energy? Uh, let's get a little quirky. There's something called zero point energy where there's so much energy around us all the time in like the shape of some donut that uh, is always spinning eternally. And I guess Tesla figured this out. And uh, what do you think about this? This sounds ridiculous, right? The oil companies are covering it up. Are you looking it up right now? I, well, I'm looking at Wikipedia, so it's like whether I'm looking it up or not is debatable, but <laughs> I'm reading something on Wikipedia. I'm just scanning through it. It's filled with a lot of very high-level buzzwords, so I'm going to yes. give it up. I'm going to give it a one it makes out of five. It feel good right to now. read about it. It's like, yes. This sounds a lot like that. This sounds like solutions. a lot like the perpetual motion device that will solve all of our our energy problems. Once you just start the ball twirling, it twirls forever. And then if yeah. you hook up a rubber band, we can power a turbine by that twirling. And before you know it, you're like launching space shuttles because you have a ball going like this. Right. Wait, I think somewhere the physics break down. Well, of course, because. At the end of the day, with people and everything else, we're talking about the second law of thermodynamics, right? I mean, you can't get past that. Nothing is more sure than that, the second law of thermodynamics. So ultimately, I think we have to get off the planet and look for other places to live uh, at some point if we want to live as we're not getting off the planet, at least not on a human time scale that we will ever be able to appreciate. Even our descendants wouldn't be. Well, how do we be able to ever get off? We don't take advantage of the oil that we have now. Because if we just I mean, getting off the planet isn't the problem. Out. Surviving and finding another place to live. Like, okay, why don't you have any penguins in the Arctic? They're on the Earth and they can't make it across to colonize. And it's like we don't just got to go to Mars. We got to build a home. We don't just got to go to Alpha Centauri. We got to build a home. We got to go to these places. We got to explore these places. We got to build the infrastructure. Why do you assume? We get to go to the stars. Humanity has this big problem with like, we just assume because it's there, nature's good. There's going, there must be a reason somewhere out there that we can find. Why? Why do scientists assume? No, no, no. Why? Your first, your, your first assumption is look around you. Does it exist? No. Assume it can't exist. Why? That's accurate more often than the alternative. Well, if you look at the development of the human species and civilization and the technological gadgets and everything like that, I mean, I don't think people would have ever seen any of this coming. So who are we to presume what it is we can't accomplish? You know, no, no, it's not presuming we can't accomplishment. It's assuming that if we're rare, we're rare because of a reason. Why don't we go across the stars? Why aren't we doing that already? There's probably a good reason life does not already go across the stars from what we've been able to find. Because our alien overlords don't want that to happen. Or because the the second law of thermodynamics is just a giant party pooper. It's literally too difficult. It's like... I'm not saying we're going to live forever and transcend reality. Uh, I'm not Ray Kurzweil, but I think that you know we are going to reach carrying capacity on this planet if we haven't already, in which case we need to go find another home. Uh, Why? How does that follow? That's progressive thinking. That's part of the problem. Well, that's how America was discovered. It's just like, okay, we need to go somewhere else. Manifest destiny. Let's move west. More land, more resources, right? And, you know, it's just part of our nature to go out and discover and explore and habitate. But if you if you come into I guess the I, it all depends on whether or not you believe energy is going to be uh, – energy on the level of oil is going to be replaceable and sustainable. If you do – that's a fair question because that is at the heart of the material religion that we live in right now. Why does that mentality work? Why is that socially acceptable? Because for the last 200 years, if you thought like Matt Ryan right now, more often than not, you were going to make better investments than the guys you thought it was going to be the old way of things. 
your children probably reproduce better. But now we're finally running into that point when it's like, hey, if we don't get a replace for energy, Matt Ryan's viewpoint is going to be the, the grasshopper wasting resources. You know what I mean? Like if we don't find some way of overcoming that critical shortfall, this is no longer novelty and going out to find new things. It's a waste of goddamn resources. And we don't often know. You don't know for certain. It'd be great if God would just give us a clear cut answer. If, if Mother Earth would rise up one day and just tell us point blank, what are the numbers? What are the chances? Like, but and because we don't know, we can tell ourselves a bunch of things and we can hope and have optimism. Got to have a, that optimism. So okay, yeah, but that optimism that needs optimism. to be grounded in reality. Well, right. you know, why not? We could do it. We made it to you Mars. Know, well, I mean, look at it. Let me see. Why are you so desperate for that form of heaven? Don't you believe you'll have heaven in a personal afterlife? Doesn't all that seem sort of meaningless in the, in the face of Christianity? Because I'm 26 year old and filled with endorphins and male energy. <laughs> and I want to go out and conquer and I want to go out and explore the stars. Just like, I, I, I think it's part of human nature, to be honest with you. Like for thousands of years, whenever people looked at the stars, they're like looking at it with awe. They're looking at it with bewilderment. What's out there? And I think that is just part of the human experience. And so I think it's honestly our destiny to go out there, contrary to this perspective. I think it's our destiny to go out to the stars and to explore and to uh, move beyond Earth. I'd like for that to be the case. Now, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. It's probably because of the globalists. But I think that it's a worthy aspiration. I think it's a worthy uh, aim. And why not give it a shot while we have the resources, while, while we have the technology and the capacity? Yeah. That's why we didn't go back. The what? moon. The moon. What about the moon? Aliens That's why we didn't on the go dark back. side? That's why the government didn't go back. That's why the Soviets didn't pursue it. That's why the Chinese didn't really pursue it. That's why it's one of those theoretical, it's a prestige program now rather than a rather than a national like priority. And the reason for that was because when America got to the moon, everyone could see it. They started seeing NASA's numbers and the engineer, and they're like, there's no return. This is like you gotta understand that most of the people alive when we landed on the moon. In their childhood, we didn't know if there was water on Mars or not. By the time they died in the 70s and 80s, it's like every planet out there is either a barren dust ball, worse than any desert on Earth can ever be, or it's this like super compressed weird hydrogen thing where it's like it starts off as a solid, goes into a liquid, and goes into a plasma, whatever the hell that is. It's like in the you know from the 50s to the 70s, basically a significant amount of that the spirit of materialism died because it ran into the reality of why can't we go to the stars? And then we did, we went to the moon and then we began to really look at it. We realized this is a one-way ticket. We're not going back if we do it the first time. And we've been in denial since we're still sort of crappling with that. Like the environmental movement is basically this idea that we're never going to the stars until we repent of our sins on this earth. Because if, you know, the knowledge of, if we don't fix Earth now, we will not have enough time for the smart people to stumble into a way to make it work. So now we're just trying to buy time. Environmentalism is just trying to buy time to keep the space dream alive. It's not going to work. You're yeah. fighting against it. Like All of this points to a failing religion, a failing vision, a vision, not really a failing, one that has played its course. When it started in the early 1800s, the 1700s, it opened up the world, but we've grabbed all the low and medium hanging fruit. Now we've started plucking the high grain fruit. And I was like, I don't know if there's any further up to go. So I think what you're describing there, honestly, 
that was the great nightmare realized incarnated within the 20th century, the nightmare that nobody really talked about, just how disappointing getting to the moon really was. Because up until that point, you could hope, you could hope, you could hope, maybe this can work, maybe there's water on this. There's got to be, and then there wasn't. And you start seeing Mars, it's all, it's all dead, barren, lifeless, irradiated. Well, no, I mean, there's exoplanets that just take about you know, 20 centuries to get to, to, near, to the nearest one with current technology. We don't know how we would get out there. Uh, but, you know, here's, here's one idea. I read this guy uh, by the name of Stephen Harab Buner. If you haven't read him, you should. He's an interesting read. Uh, he's an ecologist who thinks holistically about a lot of things. But his idea was that we're actually bees who are meant to perform cross-pollination when in reality we think that we're looking for resources or we're looking for that nectar. You know what I mean? So we're sending cameras out into space like the Hubble telescope. We're sending these landers to Mars. We're sending all this stuff out into space to do research and to undercover th- and uncover things and do research and whatever. But those shuttles, those cameras, they all have bacteria on them. Like it, They all have strands of DNA that they can't wash off. You know, because they try to cleanse these things before they send them out into space for whatever reason. Uh, it's like trying to vacuum they can't your totally bedroom. Do it. <laughs> right. They, they can't totally work. do it. Uh, there are still some left. And it turns out these bacterial organisms can survive in the most extreme environments. High levels of radiation, high levels of heat, yes, high so, levels of freezing. You know, so and, you're so, saying we try to do it and it's going to fail. It's too hard for our level of developed life because we're too far up the hot, the, the economic troposphere. We require too much of a developed troposphere. Yes. But it this bacteria be. we're inadvertently carrying around with it's like, well, every time we dump something over there, it gets a free shot of seeing to make it work. And it only needs that one in a billion right, to just right. become self-sustaining and bam, Pam we have reproduced. <laughs> right. It could be it. We could be okay. used for pants. I love that. My, Michael Greer, the actor, he wrote a book series when that was one of humanity's primary goals. In one of his little short stories, humanity had realized we're not getting off the rock. We're never going. We, we've got hundreds of thousands of years of survival, but sooner or later we'll die, like the dinosaurs will die because our species just evolves out. It, it has to happen. So it becomes a high value of society. Um, to seed the universe. So they send out these little life pods. The whole thing were basically just like little bacteria packages. We're basically shooting our gunk all over the place, just hoping to make it stick. Do you know it's going to stick? I don't know if it's going to stick. Let's say if offer a prayer, because what were you supposed to do? It's like we have our base bead nets. We need some greater reason to live. And if not humanity itself, why don't we see if we can't grow the, the, the ecosphere so that in a billion years, humanity's Great, 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 great neighbors, like grand neighbors, maybe not even humans, but grand neighbors, some other species that evolved. Yeah. They'll have that option way off in the future. I love that idea. That's yeah. something to me that's like, if we had that sort of mindset, yes, that's the Christian mindset. Yeah, it's absolutely worthy doing all of these prayers and all of this. It has an old, a greater purpose that when you can put aside the silly nonsense of the day-to-day as it's sometimes seen, and you can embrace that. It's like you will put up with the most gruesome of real-life stuff. It's easy. Yeah, <laughs> I think that is a fantastic positive point to end on after a conversation about peak oil and about uh, a lot of things going on. So uh, – Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, do you have any last words before? I hope to be back on. Well, it was fun talking. Boom, yeah. Yeah, so anyways, do you have anything more about peak oil, anything more about the Saudis uh, going down into a pit of hell? 
Any more uh, words? I have a million things in one I could share. I'm just like any American. I have an opinion on everything. I think I'm right. Well, good. We'll save those for future videos. We're going to make this a thing. This is really easy. I love this. It was fun. Yeah, this was fun. And I enjoyed the conversation and... Like, Let me know once you've put it up on your channel so I can somehow try to embarrassingly watch myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all do it. We all do it, truly. Um, but yeah, I'll throw it on the Odyssey and everyone go check out the links. And are you going to make a YouTube channel? Are you going to make any kind of channel? Uh, I want to plug you up, brother. Is, but if you this don't. This is the first time I've done anything like this. Let's take it slow. We'll we're going to use you as the pastry disc of exploration. We're going to see what we can grow. Well, there we go. That sounds appetizing. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Alan. Thank you much, Mateo.